taken all this time to create this resume to make sure it looks very professional. And then people fold it up in tiny little bits and stick it in an envelope and mail it off to the employer. When the employer receives it, this very carefully crafted piece of artwork is all scrunched up. It's so hard in times like now to hold on. The guns they wait to be stuck by at my side. You've once again landed on NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today's Monday, November 3rd. It's about 3.31 p.m. here in New York City. And, Laura, as you know, this is the week we are launching our big collaboration with the New York Times that we have been hinting at for some time. It's about uh, some schools in Wisconsin that bought some of the worst of the toxic assets sold by Wall Street and how that rippled around the world and connected these small school districts into a global financial system in crisis. We will talk about that today and probably a bit all week. Yeah, these guys lost a whole, whole lot of money. We're also going to talk today about the International Monetary Fund. That's the IMF. We're going to talk about what it is, what it's doing, and what it needs in order to keep doing the, everything that the countries of the world seem to be asking of it right now. Adam, some planet money indicators. Yes. This, today, it's a real-world planet money indicator, our favorite planet money indicator. The TED spread is down about 8% today, which is very good, but it's uh, we're a little less dramatic than uh, the planet money indicator we got from listener Andy Washkowitz. He's a biology graduate student in Upper Manhattan studying how the heart develops and works. Andy sent us a picture recently from his neighborhood up there in Morningside Heights. So I sent a picture of, uh, of a line snaking out of my uh, morning coffee place, um, and I had noticed that uh, a couple of weeks ago the line started growing and growing and growing. And, uh, you know, usually it's just because, you know, Columbia students are coming back to school. But, um, you know, I went in and I asked, I asked the people how come uh, I had to wait for so long, and they said that one of the uh, morning coffee people had been fired. And so because there were only two people now, you know, it took much longer for, you know, the line to move forward. Now, fired because of cause or laid off because of the economy? Laid off because of the economy. So yeah. not coming back. Yeah, definitely not coming back. And I've noticed that there's only been two in the, uh, you know, a couple of weeks since, since I originally sent the picture. And it was crazy because as I noticed, uh, as I wrote in the email, um, you know, they got, rid of, uh, they got rid of one person, and so now the line is getting longer. And I've noticed that people in the line are just saying, you know, nuts to this, and they're getting out of line and going to another place. And, you know, sooner or later they're going to, you know, they're going to be making less money, and then they're going to have to fire another person. And so it's, it's, an interesting, it's interesting how the economy works, that, you know, this perception that, you know, they have to fire people is now going to lead to the reality that they're going to have to fire more people. Right. I got to say that as a business reporter, it's always hard to tell if one particular thing, one particular data point is just a really bad business person or, you know, a problem in the economy overall. But is why are people waiting in line there? Is their coffee particularly delicious or cheap? I find or? their coffee particularly delicious. Um, I guess that other people find it somewhat expendable and can go to another place uh, down the street. But yeah, I mean, they, their, their regular coffee is, is quite good. And, you know, also, I, uh, I noted in the email also that um, I, I was asking one of the coffee-making type people, and they were saying that a lot less people are getting, you know, the fancy coffee drinks and the lattes and the Americanos and whatnot, and a lot more opting for the drip coffee. And I know that when I got out of college and I sort of had to start budgeting myself, I know the lattes were the first thing to go. What are you getting now? Uh, just normal drip coffee, half-calf with skim milk. 
Got you. I got to say, Laura, I've been noticing longer lines around my neighborhood in Brooklyn. Which have is, you really? Yeah, I definitely have. Uh, actually, this morning I was on my way into work and I took a long walk and I wanted to get just a little something like a coffee and a bagel or something. And I walked by so many places with such long lines, I just didn't get anything. And I That's interesting. Yeah. So I don't I didn't do the reporting work because I'm a reporter, so why would I have done that? No, any you're not action? working, then you're walking. Yeah, I'm walking. Yeah. So Andy, thank you so much for uh, for doing the hard work that, no that I failed no to do this morning. <laughs> and we want to see more of you sending us photos of the economy. This is a perfect example. Uh, Andy just was walking down, saw something economic going on. He snapped a photo uh, of his line at the coffee shop. He asked a few questions, did some reporting, and now we have some more information. We, we would love to turn to you and ask you to do the same. That was really helpful. Please send in yours to planetmoney at npr.org. Yep, that's where we are. Cinema, and we really like it a lot. Thank you. And now it's time for the big reveal, as they say in radio. We're going to reveal that super secret story that we've been dealing with all this time with the New York Times and we were so tired from working on. That's true. It was a lot of work. Um, we, still a lot of work. It's still a lot of work, actually, because we're going to have a big blowout 18-minute story on uh, All Things Considered on Friday that utilizes one way or another, the entire Planet Money team. Um, but yesterday I had a chance to talk with Leanne Hansen of Weekend Edition Sunday with our good friend Charles Duhigg. He's the New York Times reporter who sort of structured this story that, that we worked on together. This is a story that starts in Wisconsin with some school districts that bought what they thought at the time was a collection of bonds. It turns out they were wrong. This was a collection of what are some now we now know are some of the most toxic assets in the economy. But this purchase in Wisconsin set off a chain reaction that eventually moved to Ireland and Germany and then back to the United States, to New York, Colorado and California. And it's had these worldwide ramifications. And Leanne, this is Adam. If if we start with that first step in the chain, these five school districts in the southeast corner of Wisconsin, these were uh, school boards trying to solve a small financial problem by making these investments. And what they'll now tell you is that they really didn't understand what they were buying at all. Here's Mark Hujic. He's a school board member in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, unfortunately, what we thought we bought and what we bought are two separate things, and the information we were provided uh, prior when we asked questions and received answers weren't necessarily reality or the truth. So, Charles, what were they buying? They were buying something that school boards should never actually be buying. It's, it's called a synthetic CDO. Basically, they sold insurance on a big collection of bonds, which put them on the hook if anything went bad. But they didn't know that, Leanne. This is Adam again. They were confused, I think it's safe to say. They just thought they were buying these regular old safe bonds. And these this particular asset that they bought came with a prospectus that was three inches thick. Sean Eady in Whitefish Bay actually measured it. As a matter of fact, uh, the document itself was so big uh, that it didn't fit on the shelf that I had. I actually I have had it on the floor of my office for the last two years. You know, he shouldn't feel too bad for not understanding these things. These are the types of investments that brought down some of the most sophisticated banks and, and companies in New York. The, the Wisconsin school districts were a little bit helpless. Well, Charles, you said that this, this caused a chain reaction and, and spread around the world. How did that happen? 
Well, the school boards had borrowed about $165 million from a small Irish bank named Depfa. Depfa was actually a German bank that had moved to Ireland to save taxes. And then in the early 2000s, it spread all around the world. I had a talk this week with the retired head of the New York office of Depfa. His name's Herb Jacobs. And he is he's, – he's almost, I feel like, a tragic figure. He is so proud of what he accomplished because from 2003 to – Earlier this year, he helped spearhead this small Irish bank's explosion from nothing in the U.S. into one of the central pillars of municipal finance, of, of the U.S. municipal bond world. Yeah, it was, it was very exciting. It was one of, the, one of my great uh, occupational moments in my career. Uh, and we, we shared in the success uh, with a great deal of, of pride and, and accomplishment. So... I don't think any of us envisioned that this would become a wholesale slaughter that it eventually did become. What is he talking about when he says wholesale slaughter? He's talking about how it spread from Ireland to Germany and and then back to the United States. DEPFA, that's the small Irish bank that's actually a German bank, had made so many bad deals. And and when all the big U.S. banks started collapsing, DEPFA started to collapse too. And that set off a crisis at Defa's parent company in Germany. It's a company named Hypo Real Estate. It's a big bank. German officials were so worried about a complete meltdown of the German economy because Hypo Real Estate was melting down that they had to pump $75 billion into all of these banks. And that's the moment, Leanne, when the crisis in Ireland and Germany that was started by things in the U.S., comes back to the U.S. Because DEPFA, growing so fast, had become a crucial part of of how cities and counties and school districts and park districts fund themselves. DEPFA had created a series of, of products that allowed cities and counties and municipalities to get bonds cheaper, basically to borrow more cheaply. And when DEPFA all but exploded. You have all sorts of municipalities in the U.S. having to spend a lot more money to borrow money. So Charles found out that the MTA in New York, the people who run our buses and subways, are having to pay millions more. I mean, Charles and I are probably going to have to pay more every time we go on the subway because of DEPFA's explosion. And this isn't affecting just New York, right? Not at all. Affordable housing in Colorado, in California. There's a bridge project in Vancouver that's in trouble. There are dozens, maybe hundreds of municipal projects that are linked to DEPFA that are now in trouble because of this weird economic international blow-up. Yeah, but, but Charles, explain. Is there an actual bad guy in this story? You know, I would have to say that the, the villain is probably ignorance and the exuberance that drew cities and school districts and regular people into this big economic global system when they didn't really understand how it worked. And I think there is a tragedy here, too, which is over the last 30 years, there's been a series of financial innovations that have just been plain good. They have allowed city governments, local governments to get money more cheaply, which means more hospitals, more schools, better sewers, you know, basic good public service. And that whole system may be permanently broken by this crisis. And that means that really for for the foreseeable future, it's There's just going to be less public service in the U.S. We'll have plenty more on this story all week on Planet Money. And uh, as I mentioned, Alex Bloomberg, David Kestenbaum, and I will be telling this story in detail on Friday's All Things Considered.
Caitlin, don't play the Economist House Call theme because we are going to our Economist House caller, Simon Johnson. Uh, hey, Simon. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Good. Um, but today we're going to talk to you uh, about your one of the other hats you have worn in your life. Uh, you were chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, and we want to talk about how the IMF can and cannot deal with this current crisis. You know, Laura, I, I was thinking that Every time I mention the World Bank or the IMF or the WTO or any of these big organizations that people have heard of, I always think it's worth starting with just what is, what is yeah what is the IMF and how is it different from some of these other places? Maybe the the nickel tour. Sure, the IMF is a credit union. Uh, literally, it, it belongs to 185 member governments. That's almost everybody in the world. They all chipped in some money. Actually, the lucky early ones put in some gold. Uh, back in 1945, 46, when the whole thing started started going. And its, its capital is the money that people have contributed and, very importantly, its ability to draw on member governments for further credits. So it has supplemented its basic money, so-called quota resources, in the past with some additional lines of credit. And this, I think, will be a, an important uh, precedent for, for further ways that they could, they could raise money. But they're here to help. Um, they're supposed to support uh, governments where no one else will support them. They have obviously had a bit of a bad rap in the past. People have said they've been too tough uh, in certain situations, and they're, they're trying to handle things differently this time. Um, but they are supposed to be like your credit union, and you go to them when no one else will lend to you. Simon, we've been reading about European Union finance ministers meeting and talking about the idea of maybe a whole new financial order, maybe a much more powerful, much larger international monetary fund. Is the IMF big enough to do what countries are asking it to do right now? And if not, how would it get more money in order to help everybody who needs it? Well, the IMF is not big enough right now in two senses. First of all, it doesn't have enough people. And uh, funnily enough, the uh, at, at, at the instigation of the G7, they laid off or, or eased out about 20% of their workforce over the past year uh, because the G7 said there'll never be another big crisis. Wow. Uh, well, yes, and, and I think a lot of those people have to be hired back wow. quickly. Uh, they actually got rid of many of their most experienced crisis managers, among other, among other things, because they, you know, a lot of them were, could be uh, enticed with early retirement packages. So that was unfortunate, and you could just put that one When did G7. that happen? in the G7's account. That, that, that process um, was, was initiated back in uh, November of last year. and, and Wait, moved. the crisis was already on us. Well, in retrospect, I think that is, that is how the history books will, will review the evidence wow. and, and make their assessment. Uh, yes, in, in retrospect, the crisis was in the G7, and the G7 are the people, the major shareholders, who, who call the shots on that sort of thing. So, yes, that, that was unfortunate, to say the least. Um, but it's okay. You can hire the people back. Uh, it's just money, after all. Uh, the, the second thing is, well, the second thing is about money, much, much more money. The IMF has about 200 to $250 billion that they can lend right now, ready cash. Uh, they could lay their hands on, on more money um, if they scramble. There's always the so-called, um, they have a catalytic, they, they like to say they have a catalytic effect, which means they bring in other people who are willing to invest when the IMF has a program. For example, for Iceland, the IMF will put in something like $2 billion, and they hope to raise more than that from other countries, probably the Nordic uh, countries, Scandinavia would, would be the obvious contributors. Well, the IMF really needs, is, is a, bigger, a bigger fund if it's going to uh, protect countries. So 250 total, they've, they've got 50 already penciled in or, or now in pen for various 
um, commitments to about half a dozen countries. The money goes quickly these days, as you probably noticed. They put 100 aside for a fast lane, um, rapid, rapid access uh, credit line. Uh, that's 150 gone, 250 available. Um, so you have 100 billion left to save the rest of the emerging market world. It, it's obviously not enough. 100 need, billion is money. Sorry, sorry, just to put that in context. I mean, the U.S. If you count the uh, toxic asset relief program and the stock injection program, I mean, we're we're well in well, and if you add all the Fed liquidity uh, projects, way more than that. We're well above a trillion, right? We're we're in oh, the trillions. We're, we're, we're no, as, as I said, we. The Fed has made commitments. This isn't what it will cost the taxpayer. They've made commitments easily of 70% of, of GDP. So uh, let's call that um, nine, eight to nine trillion dollars uh, commitments. And the whole thing will end up costing the U.S. something like uh, 10 to 20% of GDP. That's the if things go well. That's the usual cost of fallout from this kind of crisis. Uh, so let's call that three uh, trillion dollars will be a- end up being added to the national debt when when all is said and done. So that is a lot of money, Simon. <laughs> yeah, a hundred billion that. is nothing. I yeah, mean, not, right. you know, it, it's ridiculous. To save the world, a hundred billion, but well, yeah. no, hold on. But a hundred billion won't save the world. Yeah. <laughs> what they need, I think, is, is substantially more than that. And I, you know, they can do it with with smoke and mirrors, but I, I really don't think you want to do that. We've we've tried that um, in 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 the U.S. context, in the European context. You know, it's high stakes poker, and people are going to call your bluff. I think they need a trillion dollars. Actually, I think they need two trillion, but. In public, I'm saying a trillion because it's a little less scary than two trillion. And how do they get that? Um, to, do they call up Hank Paulson and say, "Hey, you probably have an extra eight hundred billion lying around"? You Could found you... seven hundred. Well, yeah. it's funny you should suggest that because Gordon Brown is has been touring the Middle East, making exactly that uh, proposal. He's saying, "Let's provide a." I think what he's saying is, "Let's provide an additional line of credit to the IMF," um, and um, the industrialized countries will chip in some, but we want the big emerging markets who hold lots of reserves, read the Middle East, um, plus China, and then Japan has a trillion dollars. Um, so Japan has a trillion, China has two trillion, the Middle East has probably 1.5 trillion in, in reserves. Um, and from those sources, plus the European Union and the U.S., you could easily come up with a trillion, if you really put your mind to it. I don't think they'll do a trillion, honestly, short term, but if they could do several hundreds of billions, um, on November 15th, uh, that would be a very good idea. But wait a second, Simon. If you, you're going to these countries who are already in crisis, you're saying even the safest bank bonds are basically not trading out of terror. We want you to give us a few hundred billion to invest in basically the most troubled economies on earth. I mean, if you went to a private company to do that, you'd need to give, I don't know, you'd have to give them like 80% or 300% interest. What, what's in it for the countries? Why, why would they do it? Uh, world peace, global economic stability, uh, save the world, keep oil prices high. Uh, you, you can you know, look at it very, various ways. Uh, OPEC uh, can't uh, prevent oil prices from slumping badly. They, they, we know they can't collude when, when uh, prices are falling. Uh, for the Middle East, this is their best shot at, at keeping keeping growth going. Uh, China will be hit very hard if all their export markets uh, slow down. Same thing is true for Japan. So there's a lot of self-interest in it. Remember, this is money. They have a lot of money they're already keeping in reserves, so they, they park it in U.S. Treasuries. Lending to the IMF traditionally has been as safe as lending to the, to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, you may be right that in this situation there could be more risk there, but the IMF always gets its money back and always pays people back. And you're asking for a line of credit to the IMF rather than uh, which, and you can so you can continue to keep the money in your own reserves and count it as reserves. Um, it's 
I agree, a fairly big proposition, but we're facing a big problem. And if the emerging markets won't come on board, it's not clear to me that the G7, the industrialized countries themselves, are willing to step up and, and, and finance uh, the whole bill this time. Simon, I had one last question. When you get to be the chief economist of the IMF, how do they tell you you got the job? <laughs> um, they, the, they phoned me. They gave me, they gave me a phone call. Um, one from, person, phone rings? Well, that's right. Absolutely. Was it the head of the IMF? or uh, The first deputy managing director, Mr. John Lipsky, phoned me. And what did they say? Uh, congratulations. And what do you say? Oh, my God? I mean... <laughs> Um, yes, I said I, I, I said I was I was I was very excited and, um, and it would be a great pleasure to have the job. And I tried not to let on that the news had already leaked out to me a couple of hours before. <laughs> great. Well, Simon Johnson is former chief economist of the IMF. He now teaches at MIT, and he also has the fabulously helpful BaselineScenario.com. And perhaps most importantly, he is the economist house caller for Planet Money. Uh, but today we asked him to, to put on one of his other hats uh, and talk to us about IMF problems. I thought it was a house call for the IMF. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Economist House Call for the IMF. Caitlin, cue the, uh, cue the music. Economist House Call. And thank you, Simon Johnson, for walking us through the IMF. It's one of those agencies or actors or I still don't even really know what to call it. But whatever it is, it's always seemed kind of vague to me. Well, so all of this stuff can be very confusing until it all collapses and then it becomes important to understand it. So, um, but uh, let's wrap this podcast. Yeah, I, I didn't know where I was going, so let's just, we'll just go stop. home. Yeah, yeah. Well, Come to our blog, npr.org/money. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for hanging out on Planet Money. Stuck by at my side is God.